0: hello and welcome to resources radio a weekly podcast from resources for the future i'm your host daniel ramey today we talk with ryan kellogg professor at the harris school of public policy and affiliated faculty at the energy policy institute at the university of chicago ryan and his co-author severin borenstein recently released a fascinating new working paper that upends some conventional wisdom in energy economics the paper called Carbon Pricing, Clean Electricity Standards, and Clean Electricity Subsidies on the Path to Net-Zero Emissions, finds that carbon pricing, long the preferred tool of most economists, may actually not be as efficient as other policy options. In today's conversation, Ryan helps us understand why economic theory has led many to favor carbon pricing, and why, in the messy real world, the conventional wisdom may turn out to be wrong. Stay with us. Ryan Kellogg, my friend from the University of Chicago. Welcome to Resources Radio.
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's great being here.
0: So, Ryan, I'm kind of shocked that we haven't had you on the podcast before. You work on so many fascinating uh, topics, and you've written so many great papers over the years. I'm I'm thrilled that we finally get the chance to talk to you. And we're going to talk specifically about a paper that you've co-authored with Severin Bornstein from UC Berkeley, But before we do that, uh, we ask all of our guests how they got interested in working on energy or environmental issues, whether at a young age or later in life. So what drew you into this field?
1: So for me, there are actually two pieces to the story. One is how I got interested in economics, and then the other is how I got interested in energy and environment. Um, And believe it or not, the economics piece actually came first, dating all the way back to second grade. Nice. Which is not a typical place people get introduced to economics. Um, I I remember this very vividly, though. My second grade teacher, Mrs. Kramer, growing up uh, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, she was interested, one, in economics, and two, in theater. So she actually wrote a play, a fully-fledged play, that was economics-centered, I don't remember the plot anymore. It had something to do with rats. We all had rat costumes, and we were dealing with scarcity of cheese or something like that. Um, But I distinctly, I have one line. I distinctly remember it. I have no idea why this isn't printed in my brain, but it probably has something to do with why I do what I do. Um, And the line was, economics is the study of making choices brought about by scarcity. Mm -hmm. Like, I kid you not, that was my line in second grade. That's pretty Um, great. Yeah, Mrs. Kramer was fantastic. So after that, I kind of took this long detour into science and engineering. I went to college at Rice U in Texas, down in Houston, um, with the full intent of becoming a chemical engineer. Um, but while I was there, I became increasingly interested in econ and more broadly in environment and energy. Graduated from Rice with a chemie degree. You're like, this is in Texas. You get a chemie degree in Texas you're probably gonna wind up working for an oil company, which is exactly what I did. Uh, So I worked for BP for four years, which was fascinating. Learned a lot about the world, and obviously the oil and gas industry in particular. And then what really sort of got me more interested, one in academics and two in energy and environmental policy. The most fascinating thing I did while I was with BP was do economic analysis on this project that never got built, the Alaska Gas Pipeline Project. Um, it's like an actual literal pipe dream, um, to take natural gas from the Prudhoe Bay oil field, way up north in Alaska, where the the start point of the Trans Alaska Pipeline, like eight hundred miles north of Anchorage, um, and build a natural gas pipeline from there all the way down to Chicago. Um, this was two thousand one, two thousand two, so a long time ago now. Twenty billion dollar project. Um, you know the economics then were kind of shaky, and this was in a world where people thought the U.S. would be importing gas, and there would be a gas shortage because there was no such thing as shale then. Um, it's a really good thing the project didn't get built because it would have been it would have finished right when the shale boom was kicking into high gear, and natural gas prices in North America tanked. Um, so missed all that that was good, um, but like part of my experience, um, because the pipeline was so intertwined with state policy and federal policy, both u s and Canada was doing a lot of work trying to model sensitivities towards you know various tax credits, regulatory policies, and so on. There was an energy bill um, up for debate in Congress at the time um, that part was really. Fascinating, and a part of sort of what got me interested in thinking more about, you know, as I want to sort of pursue a career in sort of energy and energy economics, do I want to be doing that, working in private industry, or do I want to take a more academic route? And then in 2003, I applied to graduate school, went off to do a PhD, and then you know became the research egghead that I am today. That's that's great. Uh, so I, I next time I see you, I'm
0: gonna bring some cheese and we'll decide how to <laughs> you know divide it up between ourselves. Um and uh and I can say for firsthand experience, you may be an egghead, but you are also uh, pretty fun to hang out with. So um let's talk now about this new paper, um which as I mentioned you've co-authored with Severin Bornstein, uh, who we've had on the show. Uh, The paper is focused on three types of policies aimed at reducing emissions uh, from the electricity sector. Those three types of policies are carbon pricing, clean electricity standards. Maybe we'll call those CESs during the conversation. I don't know. Up to you. Uh, And the third one is clean electricity subsidies. So we're going to talk about those three types of policies. Our listeners probably have an intuition as to what they all are. But to get us all grounded, can you just give us a quick
1: primer on how each of those are supposed to work? You bet. So let's just start with carbon pricing, which I think is the easiest to get your arms around. Um, The basic idea of carbon pricing is to put a price on carbon emissions from fossil fuel generators. Um, It's probably easiest to think about in the context of an explicit carbon tax, um, where if you're a coal-fired generator or a natural gas-fired generator, every ton of CO2 that comes out of your stack, you pay a price on that. $40 a ton, $50 a ton, $100 a ton, wherever that price is set. Um, And you can implement that, like I said, with just an explicit carbon tax, so the money just goes straight to the feds. Or alternatively, you can sit, um, and this is effectively part of the system that California has and the northeastern states in a cap-and-trade market there, set up a cap-and-trade market where for every ton of CO2 you emit, you have to find and buy a permit, on the an emissions permit, on the open market and that acts very similar to a carbon tax in terms of the price incentive that it places on trying to uh, reduce your emissions now moving on to clean electricity standards or a CES um, there the mechanism is is different in a couple important ways so one unlike carbon pricing a CES a clean electricity standard doesn't directly tax fossil generators emissions Instead, what you're going to do under a CES is basically classify all the generators into two types, either you're clean or you're dirty. Where clean typically is meant to mean basically zero emissions or really close to zero emissions. So what would qualify as clean, you know, obviously wind and solar, also nuclear, probably geothermal. In principle, you could imagine a fossil generator with really good carbon capture and sequestration bolted onto it so that all the carbon emissions actually wind up getting reinjected into the ground. Very expensive technology, not developed at scale, but in principle, it would be covered under a CES. And then once you've made that distinction between, all right. These plants are clean. These other plants are dirty. The clean electricity standard then just says, all right, at, say, a given year, let's say 2030, we're going to mandate that all generation hit a certain clean electricity share target. So, for instance, 60% of all generation needs to be clean by a certain date and that clean generation percentage can ramp up over time. So you know, starting around, right now we're around 40%, including hydro and nuclear, of US electricity generation is clean, roughly. Um, so you can imagine ramping that up to 80 or 90% over a period of 15 years or something like that. And really what you're doing is that electricity standard incentivizes clean generation and penalizes anything that's dirty. Got it, and then our third one is clean electricity subsidies. And a, So a clean electricity subsidy, which also kind of annoyingly has the initial CES in the paper, we call them zero emission subsidies to try to make the distinction, <laughs> um, but we'll call them clean electricity subsidies. Um, there, what you're doing, it's almost the flip side of carbon pricing. Um, so you don't really do anything with the dirty generators, in terms of policy that directly affects them. Instead, what you do is you subsidize electricity-generated, megawatt-hours generated, produced by any source that's designated as clean. Um, And basically, the idea there is by subsidizing the clean generation, you're going to give them a leg up in the electricity markets so that clean generators can better push out the dirty generators over time.
0: Great. And in practice in the US, we've you know done the third policy, right? We have clean electricity subsidies that are, that are in place and at the federal level, no kind of electricity system-wide carbon pricing or clean electricity
1: standard. That's right. At the federal level of those three policies, carbon pricing, clean electricity standard, clean electricity subsidy, all we've done is clean electricity subsidy. And these are in particular the tax credits for wind and solar generation that have been around for the past 20 years or so. Um, now, Different states have implemented carbon pricing. So California and some of the northeastern states, for instance, a lot of states have implemented something that's like a clean electricity standard. These are renewable portfolio standards um, that dictate a certain share of electricity procured by utilities needs to come from renewable sources. Um, Typically, those really target wind and solar and not things like large hydro or nuclear or geothermal. Or fossil with carbon capture, right, right, great.
0: Okay, so I think we've got uh, some really good background in place. Uh, let's go now to you know the the analysis that you carry out with with Severin. Uh, you know, one of the I, I think starting points for the analysis is the uh, what I, I think is fair to say the the common wisdom among most economists who study energy and electricity uh, policy, which is a carbon pricing. In general, will tend to reduce emissions at the lowest cost to society. Um, can you give us the logic for that uh, underpinning that common wisdom, and then we'll upend it in a couple minutes? But first, what's the what's the common wisdom?
1: Yep. Yeah. So yeah, here's sort of like the what I think of as the three piece version of the common wisdom, and I'll add that you know. These sort of pieces of logic had been my thinking, my own personal thinking, about why carbon pricing was, in some sense, the efficient market-based policy for decarbonizing the grid. Um, So part one sort of goes back to this distinction I mentioned earlier between carbon pricing taxing emissions versus clean electricity standards just separating generators into two categories, clean versus dirty. The worry with the CES is that within dirty, there's variation in how dirty different generators are. So in particular, if you think about a coal plant, coal plants have really high emissions rates of CO2 per megawatt hour of electricity that they generate. More modern gas plants, especially combined cycle natural gas plants, big, high volume, highly efficient natural gas plants that get the most that they can out of the gas, have substantially lower rates of emissions than coal plants. Carbon pricing distinguishes between those two types of generation. If you're a coal plant, you're going to be paying a much higher emissions tax per unit electricity that you generate than if you're an efficient natural gas plant. A CES doesn't distinguish between that at all. From the perspective of a CES, a coal plant is dirty, a gas plant is dirty, you effectively pay the same market penalty per megawatt hour that you generate. So that then leads to the concern that as you implement a CES, yeah, you're going to be pushing fossil generation off the grid and replacing it with clean, but you're not necessarily going to be displacing the dirtiest fossil generation. So that's worry one with the CES, and sort of carbon pricing has an efficiency leg up from that perspective. Part two of the story really is about... The idea of getting electricity prices right. Um, One of the mechanisms for reducing emissions from the electricity sector is, in some sense, to use less electricity, at least as long as the grid still has some fossil in it. Um, And the nice thing about a carbon price, at least in principle, and you know we can upend this later, but in principle, what a carbon price does is it actually sort of bakes into the price of power the cost of emissions, so that. End-use consumers can actually see that cost and respond to it by reducing their use of electricity, whether it's turning their air conditioning down, investing in energy efficiency, all the different ways you might imagine consumers, whether it's industrial, commercial, or residential, trying to conserve power. Carbon pricing is really good at sending those sorts of price signals. Clean electricity standards are less good. And if you think about a clean electricity subsidy, that actually lowers the price of electricity rather than raise it. In some sense, it moves in the opposite direction. Of a carbon price.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then the final and third piece is really about government revenue. A nice side benefit of carbon pricing um, is basically that you're generating revenue for the government. um, And that's revenue that the government can use, you know, in some sense, however it pleases. It can reduce other taxes like income taxes and and things like that, Um, it can spend the revenue on various other programs. Because it's all going into the big fiscal budget, it can be redistributed as progressively or regressively as people want it to be distributed. That's all nice. A CES doesn't generate any revenue for the government. And then, of course, a clean electricity subsidy actually involves the government paying out revenue. And that revenue ultimately has to come from somewhere. Either additional taxation, cutbacks in spending elsewhere, um, or, you know, deficit increases that have to be paid for somewhere down the road. Um, so those, those budget differences are important, though it is, it is sort of useful to point out that if we're thinking about deep decarbonization of the grid, um, I think one thing people sometimes forget about carbon pricing is that if you actually drive emissions to zero, you're not generating any revenue anymore. You might have a really high carbon price and a really high carbon tax rate. um, But if you drive all the fossil out of the grid, you're multiplying that tax rate times zero CO2. So the tax revenue ultimately goes away with carbon pricing if you really crank down on it.
0: Right, right. Over the long term, for sure. Okay, great. Uh, That is extremely helpful. Uh, Let's talk now about comparing some of the analysis and findings you come up with um, with regard to carbon pricing versus clean electricity standards. And then we're going to talk about uh, subsidies after that. But first, electricity standards. So your analysis shows that under certain circumstances, using a CES could be just as efficient from society's perspective uh, as a carbon price. Can you
1: help us understand how you get there? You bet. And this is, was the big surprising result to Severn and myself as we worked on this paper. Um, and this really cuts at sort of the first reason I gave a few minutes ago for why economists have been skeptical of a CES, that it's a CES, a clean electricity standard, doesn't do a great job of targeting the really, really dirty coal plants um, because it lumps together coal and gas together in a category called dirty. If you think about ramping up a CES over time from 40% now to something more like 80 or even 90% in the future and think about sort of as renewables penetrate the grid and start pushing out fossil, what fossil is going to exit the market first? Well, electricity markets are intensely competitive, The fossil generators that are going to leave the markets first are the ones that have the highest ongoing operating costs, the ones that the operators find the most expensive to keep around. They're the ones that are going to have the hardest time competing with all the new green generation that's being pushed by the CES policy. So if you want to think about which fossil generators are going to leave the market first, what you need to think about then is, all right, what's the rank ordering of What are the most expensive fossil plants to keep running? And then what happens as you sort of go and look at cheaper and cheaper plants as you go down the merit order? And what's a potentially happy coincidence is that if the most expensive plants to keep running in terms of private dollars that have to be paid in order to generate the megawatt hours, if those plants also happen to be the ones that have high emissions rates, then a CES... And carbon pricing, which really targets those high emitters, are actually going to wind up wiping out the fossil generators in the same order, that is, in the order of highest emissions rate down to lowest emissions rate. But this really comes down to trying to understand, if looking across all the fossil generators in the U.S., within that population, just how correlated are emissions rates and private operating costs. Put another way, are units that have high operating costs also high emissions rates? Are units that are low operating costs? Are those also low emissions rates? So what Severn and I do is we basically go to the data to see what that correlation actually looks like. Um, So the Energy Information Administration, the EIA, provides all this data readily. Um, We gather all this data for the year 2019, which we think of as the last pre-COVID kind of normal year. Um, And... What we actually see, it's really shockingly stark in the data, is that the big dirty coal plants that have really high emissions rates and under 2019 conditions are much more expensive to keep running than the newer, more efficient um, combined cycle gas turbines um, The upshot of this is that if you think about modeling—and we model this in a very simple way—modeling what happens as you crank up a CES from 40 to 90% clean over time and compare that to a policy of cranking up a carbon tax such that the carbon tax also over time eventually gets the grid to 90% clean. This gets you to a carbon tax on the order of $150 per ton of CO2. It's a big tax. The differences in emissions between those two policies during the transition is really, really tiny, on the order of about 2% of total emissions during the transition. And that's just coming from the fact that both the CES and a carbon price are effectively getting rid of the fossil plants in the same order. The coal plants go away first, and then you start taking out the more efficient natural gas plants. So this worry that I and many economists and others have had about a CES that you're not really, the CES, the clean electricity standard, doesn't really target the dirty plants you want to get out of the grid, that actually may not matter enough because those really dirty plants happen to also be really expensive to run, and they're going to have a really hard time competing in the presence of a CES. Yeah.
0: Yeah perfect so so one thing that um, that I certainly thought about reading that conclusion and that I imagine some of our listeners are thinking about is you know what happens if natural gas prices change which of course they they have historically and natural gas prices have been pretty volatile uh, over much of the last you know 10 to 15 years natural gas prices have been really low because of the shale revolution which we talked about earlier but just in the last you know six months to a year natural gas prices have gone up dramatically right they've more than doubled and maybe even more than tripled uh, during some times over the last uh, year or so. So what um, what happens uh, in future scenarios where natural gas prices are substantially higher uh, than you might assume in a paper that focuses on the year 2019?
1: Yeah. If you look at a scenario where gas prices are quite a bit higher than they were in 2019, which was about $3 per million BTU, about the same price that had prevailed for much of the 2010s, mostly due to shale gas, at a much higher natural gas price, Without a commensurate increase in the coal price, you can get a reversal. That is, you can get to a point where the natural gas plants do become more expensive than the coal plants. And then you do have this problem that a clean electricity standard basically drives the gas plants out of the market while the coal plants linger around for a long time. And that would clearly be a bad outcome, and that's where having something like a carbon price actually becomes really important. Um, So, you know, That scenario is out there. It's something to worry about. That said, Severin and I don't worry about it too much, I think, for two reasons. One, say, look at natural gas prices now, which have, at various points in time this year, been triple what they had historically been going back to 2019 and earlier. Coal prices are also really high. So in some sense, coal is still going to have a hard time competing on the margin as you add more renewables to the grid. And then two, as you think about a world where we actually are enacting these stringent policies and aggressively decarbonizing the grid, that's a world where natural gas isn't really scarce because we've been driving natural gas and and other fossil fuels effectively out of the market. So that's a world where in some sense natural gas is cheap because the grid isn't demanding it anymore because of these aggressive decarbonization policies. That is, decarbonization itself, one effect of that is going to be reducing the demand for fossil fuels across the board, which is going to tend to drive prices down. Um, And in some sense, like one of the really big challenges of decarbonization is continuing to push clean sources of energy in a world where fossil energy is no longer scarce and is actually plentiful and available. Policy innovation is just... Put us in a position where we don't want to buy it anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Really interesting. Um, let's let's keep going. I, I, you know, we could talk about price issues and and expectations about future prices uh, uh, for a long time, and maybe we will when we're done recording the podcast. But um, but let's talk now about uh, the subsidy option and comparing subsidies with the. Uh, carbon price. So um, as you mentioned earlier, one of the concerns about clean electricity subsidies is that they'll tend to reduce electricity prices, which will encourage people to use more electricity, which will result in more pollution overall, uh, as long as there are dirty sources on the grid. So what do you find when you look at this question of whether carbon pricing or subsidies would be sending uh, better or worse price signals to consumers?
1: So- The conventional story that a carbon price is really good at sending the right price to consumers and trying to get consumers to conserve, especially when dirty generation is still on the grid, that story really hinges on retail price signals reflecting actual costs of generation, including the costs of any emissions. That story about retail pricing, though, turns out to be really wrong for the United States. Um, And so at this point, really piggybacks off of some past work Severin Borenstein, my co-author on this paper, has done with Jim Bushnell over the past few years. Jim Bushnell is a professor at UC Davis. Um, What they look at um, are retail markups of electricity prices that consumers pay across the US. Um, Let me say a little bit about what that means. So, Let me think about my own electricity bill here in Chicago. I'm a customer of ComEd. They're the big distribution utility that serves Chicagoland. My electricity rate is about 11 and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Electricity is kind of cheap here in the Midwest. If I look at my bill breakdown, um, and I sometimes do because I'm an energy geek. I don't think most people do this. what you see, what at least what I'll see, is that of that eleven and a half cents, about four to five cents of that is ComEd's cost of procuring power on wholesale markets um, or generating some of that power itself. That's the actual, real private, you know, in some sense, wholesale market cost of power. What it pays to generators. The rest of that difference, you know, something like seven cents per kilowatt hour. Pays for ComEd's fixed distribution costs, what it costs to maintain and operate all the distribution power lines, pay people who work in the central office, all of the fixed costs of running a big utility. But that's all paid on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. Um, But those fixed costs, they don't really vary with how much electricity I consume. But in principle, they do discourage me from doing things that would increase my electricity consumption because I'm paying 11 and a half cents rather than four cents. So for instance, if I'm thinking about getting an EV, which is one of the things I'm thinking about, that electricity rate obviously factors pretty largely into that kind of trade-off. Now here in Chicago, we currently still have a fairly dirty grid in the Midwest. Paying a somewhat marked up price for power is maybe okay from that perspective, but if I look at, say, California or maybe New York or parts of New England that have cleaner grids that don't really have a lot of coal on them, unlike here in Chicago, retail electricity prices there are much higher than the actual cost of generation, including any costs you assign to emissions coming from the fossil generators that are on the grid. So retail rates in California and New York are are in excess of $0.30 per kilowatt hour for most customers. That's really high. Um, And by New York, I mean New York City. And as the grid gets cleaner across the U.S., what what places like California and New York are experiencing now is going to happen everywhere. We're going to have high retail markups that actually discourage electricity use rather than promote it when the grid is clean. Getting back to carbon pricing now, what does carbon pricing do? Well, that's just going to increase the price of electricity even more, which exacerbates all these utility retail price markups that already exist. Um, So if consumers now paying even more for what will be clean electricity, which is particularly problematic if one of our decarbonization goals is to use clean electricity to decarbonize other sectors like transportation via electric vehicles. Um, because why would I buy an EV if electricity costs 30 cents per kilowatt hour? So getting retail prices right from that perspective actually seems to argue more for something, a policy like a clean energy subsidy that leads to lower clean electricity prices rather than higher clean electricity prices. It's, it's It's a big turnaround from the conventional thinking on carbon pricing versus subsidizing clean energy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sure uh well I know based on uh you know some of the feedback I've seen online uh to the paper that this this work is definitely getting people thinking and helping people question their assumptions about uh you know what they may have thought beforehand about carbon pricing. And these other types of policies. So it's a a really great contribution. It's a fascinating paper. Uh, Of course, we'll have a link to it in the show notes uh, for people to check out. And um, now we're going to go to our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, asking you, Ryan, to recommend something that is at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack, uh, something you've read or you've watched or you've heard uh, that you think is really great and that you think our listeners would enjoy.
1: So I recently read the book Superpower, by Russell Gold. Highly recommend it. Um, It's a book about an effort by this company, Clean Line Energy Partners, and in particular, the sort of owner-CEO of this company, Michael Skelly, um, to develop a large utility-scale independent wind farm in the Oklahoma panhandle where nobody really lives or very few people live, but there's an awful lot of wind, um, and try and develop a transmission line to get that wind to major population centers out east, in particular Memphis, um, as sort of the plug-in point to get into the eastern grid. Um, This was around 2010 or so. And the book really does a fabulous job of storytelling of all the obstacles that Michael Skelly and his company ran into trying to get this big interstate clean electricity transmission line built in terms of you know securing permission from the various states and municipalities that the line would have to go through, and trying to find a utility buyer on the other end, in this case, the Tennessee Valley Authority, to actually want to buy the electricity rather than using their own generators. Um, the book does a really nice job of sort of laying out just how substantial each of these obstacles were. I won't spoil the ending, <laughs> um, um, but the obstacles are serious, and they speak to things that Severn and I don't really talk about in our own paper that, you know, subsidies for clean electricity are, are good, useful things and we should be doing that. But their efficacy is going to be limited by the very real fact that in order to actually get the most that we can out of renewable technologies like wind and solar, we need to find ways to get electricity from the parts of the country that have good wind and solar resources, which tends to be right down the center of the country, which is not very densely populated and get that electricity out to the major population centers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is a really fascinating book. I, I read it uh, when it first came out and um, yeah, it's, it's really great. It's interesting. There was actually an announcement just um, I think this week, we're recording this the last week of July, uh, an announcement from the Midwest interconnection uh, system operator that there was a new uh, agreement to build out lots of new high-voltage transmission lines. I'm not sure if that's actually you know going to go forward as planned, but uh, I did at least see that announcement, which is maybe a hopeful note in this story.
1: Yeah. No, I, I have some hope for that. There There is some controversy with regards to that announcement and that but sort of the the projects that are being considered my understanding is that they are utility sponsored projects and some of the independent transmission line builders are arguing that they were in some sense cut out of the process um i'm not i haven't dug into the facts quite enough to sort of have a full have a full grasp of that though
0: yeah Interesting. All right. So definitely a topic for a future podcast. Um, Great. Well, Ryan Kellogg from the University of Chicago, once again, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, for helping us understand this really fascinating paper, uh, and for um, sharing
1: the work with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Daniel. This has been a lot of fun.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.